Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Russia's flagship economic conference, kicking off in St. Petersburg on Thursday, has been overshadowed by the detention of U.S. investor Michael Calvi. It certainly hits investor confidence, um, and this isn't something Russia can readily afford, uh, given the successive rounds of Western sanctions that have already kind of had an impact on on the flow of, of cash into the country. We'll be speaking with Anne Simmons of the Wall Street Journal about what Russia is doing to shore up its image and find new trading partners. And later, HBO's roaring hit Chernobyl has sparked some uncomfortable conversations in Russia. Russia is not great at uh, memory work uh, when it comes to its own transgressions. We'll be speaking with writer Michael Idov about why the show has struck a chord in the U.S. and a nerve in Russia. First up, a prominent U.S. investor is under house arrest in Moscow, Morgan Stanley have recently shut up shop in Russia, and we're hearing rumors of more U.S. sanctions. Still, the Kremlin is barreling ahead with pomp and circumstance with its flagship investor conference this week in St. Petersburg. The question is, who's actually going to show up and how much money are they bringing? Joining us on the line is Anne Simmons, Moscow bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. And thanks very much for taking the time to join us in the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's our pleasure. The elephant in the room this year is, of course, Michael Calvi, the U.S. investor detained under house arrest on embezzlement charges. How damaging has his detention been uh, for the image ahead of this year's forum? Well, you know, um, this forum is extremely important for Russia. And um, Mr. Calvi's uh, detention has certainly cast a shadow over what is seen to be a showcase economic event. And it's cast a shadow at least from the American perspective. For example, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman, said that embassy officials would boycott the forum until Mr. Calvi's case remains unresolved, why Mr. Calvi's case remains uh, unresolved. And um, it certainly hit investor confidence. Um, And this isn't something Russia can readily afford, uh, given the successive rounds of Western sanctions that have already kind of had an impact on on the flow of, of cash into the country. Um, There are those, of course, who think um, that Mr. Calvi should indeed be prosecuted. So we're not saying that everyone is uh, against this particular move, but certainly there is a a contingent of those who feel that um, Mr. Calvi's arrest has has threatened uh, the kind of investor confidence, and that's not something that, uh, that Russia needs right now. And there are many who have condemned, many, many prominent Russian entrepreneurs who have condemned uh, the criminal case against Mr. Calvi, including actually the country's top business ombudsman, Boris Titov, mm. who has spoken out against the use of criminal law in, in show, um, shareholder disputes. So just to, just to say yes, Mr. Calvi's detention certainly isn't just the footnote when it comes to this important forum. Hmm. It's probably not a coincidence that Chinese President Xi is in Russia this week for a three-day visit. Is the Kremlin signaling here that while the West may not be interested in doing business with Russia, China is? Well, Russia 
things have certainly been pivoting to the East in recent years. And that the very fact that the Chinese leader has been given the red carpet treatment during what is essentially a state, state visit, it really signals that Moscow and Beijing are trying to cement their political and economic and military ties. Mm. Um, these are extremely important optics. And President Xi was expected to lead something like an entourage of a thousand Chinese officials and businessmen to Russia. That's a huge number. I believe it's the largest delegation from any country. And given that both Russia and China are at odds with the U.S., Moscow, of course, over the series of sanctions that it's been hit with since uh, Russia's annexation in 2014 of, of Crimea. And I should hasten to add that, of course, many Russians, most Russians believe that Crimea legitimately belongs to Russia. And then China, of course, uh, is embroiled in this massive trade dispute with Washington, which is straining ties. So certainly Russia wants um, the point to come across that even though Washington doesn't want to do business with it, with, with Moscow, who cares? You know, we've got China, an economic powerhouse in mm. our corner. I think particularly in the West, we're hearing a lot at the moment about how the Russian economy is really struggling, particularly given Western sanctions. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? If, if Is there any particular industry that we can point to or trend that we can point to within the Russian economy that uh, sort of illustrates optimism? Um, I would say that the agricultural sector appears to be flourishing despite international sanctions, despite the fact that uh, the Russian economy has been flagging. And it's because in many ways, international sanctions have forced Russia to become more self self-subsistent. Russian wheat exports, for example, are booming. And I believe that Russia is now kind of the world's largest wheat exporter. And this is like since the first time, you know, since the years of the Tsars. That is a big deal. I believe it's something like um, grain production of over 100 million tons a year, something to that effect. And um, Russia has also done really well in terms of encouraging import substitution, Pork and chicken production is thriving, uh, sugar beet production is thriving, and also kind of the a greenhouse vegetable production. So why agriculture, though, remains kind of, you could say, you know, the stepchild uh, compared to profits from oil and gas, the sector is definitely um, really kind of um, probably thriving more than was to be anticipated hmm. um, when sanctions were first imposed. So. You know, um, yes, that would certainly be a bright spot, the agricultural sector in terms of uh, Russia's economy. Around February, whenever uh, Michael Calvi was detained, we were seeing figures that um, net foreign direct investment in Russia fell to around $6 billion in 2018 from 26 in 2017. What kind of impact is this having on the Russian economy? And will a pivot to China make up for those, for those losses? You know, Interesting question, Jonathan. I mean, it's certainly been pretty damning. Without critical foreign investment, foreign direct investment, I mean, the economy is going to continue to stagnate. There's there's no doubt about that. Russia needs uh, direct foreign investment. Um, Right now, investors are wary because of the political dynamics surrounding Russia and also because of the, the, the Mr. Kelvy factor, the fact that if he can be arrested and he is someone who is a veteran um, in this country and also someone who has advocated for investment in Russia, if he can be arrested, then who am I? You know, anyone can be. That's kind of the the chilling effect that that this has had. And if businesses aren't, um, business people aren't investing, then 
it can also have a, a ripple effect uh, on other sectors, you know, tourism or cultural exchange program or where people might be feeling that, you know, no foreign direct investment. What's that saying? Uh, what does that have to say about this country that claims to be economically stable and friendly and thriving? So I think Russia is probably worried about that, although you won't hear that directly from the Kremlin. Um, there is certainly a point of pride, as you know, in Russia. Russians are very resilient. And there is this feeling that, you know, okay, so we'll go alone, you know, we'll just keep plowing ahead. The move towards China, the pivot towards the east, is good for Russia. Russia has uh, really courted foreign, um, sorry, Chinese investment. And um, that is a big deal. It's certainly going to be helping in Russia in years to come. And I think that Russia wants to play that up, to show the West again that you may not be in our corner, but China is. And thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. HBO's miniseries recounting the explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power station and the Soviet authorities' efforts to manage the fallout of the tragedy has become the most highly rated show on IMDb. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. The reactions in Russia, however, have been more mixed. Kremlin-friendly commentators have criticized the show for ignoring the Soviet Union's victory, while some fans have lamented that Chernobyl could not ever have been made in Russia's political climate today. Joining us on the line is Michael Idov, who could be introduced a whole variety of ways, but in short, he writes books, he's written for the screen, and was editor-in-chief of GQ in Russia. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. Chernobyl has been a huge success uh, in Russia and, of course, in the United States. Can you tell us why you think that might be? Well, honestly, I think it's a case of uh, pure meritocracy because it's a great show. Uh, It is not a natural um, hit. And it's obvious that... (laughs) Uh, it's obvious why it would gather so much attention in um, in the former Soviet Union, but um, but if we look at how it got you know greenlighted and produced, it, this is not something that I think HBO would uh, consider uh, a surefire success. It's um, it doesn't have big stars. It's rather brutal and brutally bleak and um it's based on a you know it it takes place in a in a decidedly sort of unsexy world and um i think the reason it's a huge success is that it really gripped people um all over the world and it um it just sort of won them over uh despite all the thematic and stylistic peculiarities. We've seen a good deal of commentary from columnists here in Russia who have said that this show could never be made here. I was wondering if you agree with that and why you think that they um, came to that assessment. Well, um, I mean, as a sort of Russian cultural producer myself, uh, I've been struggling with these questions as soon as I saw literally the first episode um, of Chernobyl. And uh, to me, it's... uh, Creatively, this could have been done. Uh, you know, this could have come from not perhaps not Russian, but Russian speaking or let's say Russia adjacent uh, talent easily. And the show itself, I mean, the you know, the logistics of the show are such that it could have been run out of Eastern Europe. They are using a Lithuanian abandoned uh, atomic station that's sort of a, a twin of the Chernobyl one as the main set, and uh, they shot it in Lithuania and Ukraine, which 
uh, Russian filmmakers do routinely. Even with the current conflict in Ukraine, the Russians still shoot in Ukraine, which is kind of an interesting uh, mm. uh, thing to ponder. And, um, of course, all these wonderful details of the material world that they have reproduced so lovingly and so correctly are also available to an Eastern European uh, film production. The reason it couldn't be shot is that uh, it is honestly financial, because... Um, a production of this size in Russia cannot be sustained by private uh, money. That's that's the reason. And uh, with public money, which comes almost exclusively from the state-owned TV channels, comes the set of uh, restrictions um, on the plot, on the characters, on the general uh, sort of uh, general thrust of of the piece and uh, we see it in the Russian reaction to it, the Russian official reaction to it, because, you know, the show itself puts it best. Russia is a country obsessed with not being humiliated. Mm. And since a proper reckoning about Chernobyl involves admitting mistakes, showing that uh, Russia could be weak or wrong as a country without denigrating the people. But unfortunately, it is almost impossible for the official Moscow, and that includes you know, Russian television at this point, to consider Russia the state uh, as something separate from Russia the country. And, and this is why a show like this could never, it could have been written, it could not be financed hmm. or uh, put on by any of the big channels. As we speak, it's making me rethink uh, sort of the strategies that I've used in uh, in working in both the Western and uh, Russian television. Hmm. Honestly, it's a huge moment for me. I mean, uh, I, I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that the existence of Chernobyl and the fact that it was done so brilliantly is really making me uh, rethink a lot of uh, my own career. Hmm. Part of the political conversation that the show has sparked in Russia um, is about or has to do with relates to the Kremlin's official attitude towards the liquidators. Uh, I think Putin last mentioned them in 2016. If you compare this phenomenon to Russia's very loud celebration of its victory in World War II and the veterans who fought in the war, it's sort of a, it's a strange contrast. I was wondering if you could explain explain the the difference in the official reactions to World War II veterans and the liquidators. Why is it that one is sort of celebrated and the other appears not to be? Well, it's very easy. Uh, World War II is a history of uh, victory over an external enemy and thus is useful politically every time you need uh, to shore up the sense of Russia as a besieged fortress or, um, you know, kind of shore up patriotism at the expense of this kind of myth about how everyone hates Russia and everyone is against it, you know. And um, the heroic deeds of the liquidators are a response to an internal problem, uh, an internal catastrophe. Uh, Any conversation about it involves a conversation about the flaws in the system, um, in the way things were run. And uh, and also involves uh, reckoning with uh, uh, over 30 years of uh, relative neglect that a lot of uh, Chernobyl heroes uh, have experienced. Um, so um, obviously, you know, Russia is not great at uh, memory work uh, when it comes to its own transgressions, uh, you know. So... Uh, as it's quietly and not so quietly dismantling all, you know, museums and, uh, you know, things like that uh, devoted to the memory of 
the Stalin era repressions, is is it any wonder that uh, the liquidators are not being seated as much as a, and as loudly as the World War II veterans? Many journalists here, um, my colleagues, my peers, both Russians and uh, foreigners, have I think been frustrated over the last several years about the lack of nuance with which the West uh, talks about Russia, and yet Chernobyl is a very obvious exception. Do you think this could be a, a watershed moment that might spill over into, into daily life, maybe even into politics? I might be too optimistic about this, but I think so, yes. Uh, I think this is a game changer um, because of the few conversations I've had with Western producers and writers who are doing Russia-related content ever since the show premiered. They were all, you know, like that. They were basically just, uh, there's a consensus that this is the new bar to clear. This is the new standard. And, um, you know, uh, I'm always so terribly frustrated by the, you know, these kind of tone deaf descriptions of Russia in, um, in American TV and film and, uh, you know, uh, to say nothing of the, you know, the news media. But, and I don't, I don't think it will honestly affect news media so much. But, you know, the frustrating thing about this new Cold War is that instead of uh, denigrating each other's political systems, we're actually impugning each other's character, including in, like national character, hmm. which is uh, which makes it worse than the communist era Cold War, because at least then the political systems were different. And you could say that, oh, these are evil imperialists, uh, you know, oppressing the poor American worker or something like that. And um, now that the systems are similar on paper, uh, you know, Russia is technically a capitalist country. Mm. The only thing left to do is to actively denigrate the national uh, and the moral character of the other side, which is freaking horrifying. And uh, so a great reminder that, you know, that a, a state is one thing and its people are uh, another thing is a very useful corrective, uh, mm. both for Russia and for the United States at this point. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. And to finish off, meet Vitaly Nalivkin, a fake politician who is working tirelessly to solve the very real problems in Ussurysk. Andrei Klochkov, a former journalist in the far eastern city, launched the social media project to poke fun at local authorities who were coming up short on solving local issues. And Nalivkin's ideas really are quite novel. How to solve a water pollution crisis? Simple. Turn off the water. The city is plagued by poor air quality? No problem. Install automated air refresheners on every street. Nalivkin's Instagram page already has almost 40,000 followers. One might wonder how many are regional officials. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. Chernobyl, and other oddities from across Russia. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Pyotr Cyber, and thank you to CM Record Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. Mm-hmm.